Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello everyone, David here. Welcome back to the DGR podcast. I hope you're all doing well. Um, this is episode number 69. I have a great guest today. I'm joined by Jill Miller. Uh, many of you probably know Jill, I imagine. She is pretty big deal in the industry. She's been in the industry for about 30 years now, working in the worlds of yoga, massage, athletics, pain management. Um, she's a fascia researcher. She's been in many big publications around the world. And um, we spoke a lot today about breathing. She has a new book out, um, and you'll hear us talk all about that. We spoke about breathing, the role of breathing in recovery and relaxation, and also relaxation-induced anxiety, which is something that I've seen, something that I've probably experienced, but not something that I've actually spoken about really too much with people, apart from maybe like some private clients, but not had a conversation about it, which is like some people struggle to relax. And actually, when we're trying to get them to relax, maybe maybe things get a little bit worse. So uh, that was a really interesting part of the conversation. We spoke about yoga and hypermobility, um, some of Jill's own issues there, and then her new book as well. So uh i obviously had to dive into like the logistics of how do we how do you even get around to writing a book like that how do you how do you carve out the time in your busy life like is it is it worth it to think about writing a book all all those things so that was a really really interesting part of the conversation i really enjoyed it um really appreciate jill coming on and um i think you're really going to enjoy the episode as well if you do maybe give it a share tag me and jill that would be absolutely great and then um yeah here's the episode i hope you enjoy it uh, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the chat. First time using this Riverside podcasting thing, so hopefully it'll work out. But if not, we'll just have a ch- good chat between me and you. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to give us a little bit of an intro? Um, it can be as long or short as you like, really. I know so- lots of people will probably know who you are, but for, I suppose, the people that don't. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I am a, technically, my my letters are, I'm a yoga therapist, um, but really what I I think what I am is a disruptor, a disruptor in the yoga space. And I know that that word gets tremendously overused, but in 2001, I started to create my programming model called Yoga Tune-Up. And that's 22 years old now. And I think that um, the doors have been flown wide open on bringing functional movement into the yoga space. I brought self-massage into the yoga space using um, small, grippy, pliable balls. I ended up writing a book about that called The Role Model Method. And my second book just came out a few weeks ago. It's called Body by Breath. Um, I'm also a contributor to a medical textbook called Fascia Function and Medical Applications. I have a chapter in there on self-myofascial release. So I have a deep interest in the mechanics of fascia. Uh, I have a very deep interest in the mechanics of the respiratory diaphragm and its global impact on all systems of the body. And those are kind of my sweet spots. I'm also a mom of two. I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. They preoccupy all the other parts of my brain. So, uh, you know, don't ask me about politics or anything like that. No, I won't. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) One, I know nothing about politics. And two, I'm not interested in talking about politics. Very Um, good. Very good. It it doesn't lead anywhere good, I don't think. And also, you have a nice skeleton behind you. So that's Oh, yeah. This is Osteo. Osteo. Yes. 
Well, Ostio Nuevo, because our original Ostio disarticulated. It was a tragedy, but, you know, he has no connective tissue. Ostio Nuevo is a slightly better model. Uh, he has, again, no connective tissue, but uh, somehow his screws have not gotten loose yet. Mm-hmm. I have a few, I have a few uh, loose parts hanging around my little office as well. <laughs> so, yes, I've yeah, seen them on Instagram. I, I, I'm not as I'm not as I'm not as careful with some of my skeletal parts as I should be both my ones and the ones I've purchased so I uh, probably could be in better condition but uh, when you say disruptor the I suppose the reason that this podcast kind of came about in the first place is because I actually did a little post which was talking about some of the negative aspects maybe of associated that that I would see with some parts of yoga and you kind of said because I I was going to naturally just catch a little bit of heat and you kind of said go for it. I'm, I'm here with you. So can you explain how you see yourself as a disruptor and, and in, in what way? Oh, David. Yeah, I've got your back because the, the, the yoga police will come after you fast and furious. Although I don't know that that really happened because I don't think that's really your audience anyway. Um, I, I took those hits for you yeah. for years and I live to tell the tale, like I've lived through it, and uh, I, I'll still get those um, those those uh, frustrated yoga professionals. But you know, the, the the space has changed so much, and it's changed so much because I think there's just more stretch science available now, and I think there's more understanding of body mechanics. At least that's that's how I see it, um, because there are a number of just notable educators out there really pushing an education agenda and not letting mythical anatomy or mystical anatomy be the thing that rules quote unquote alignment principles in the context of yoga, uh, yoga classes and yoga um, asana. I mean, it's still, believe me, it's still growing at a rapid clip with um, yoga mysticism or um, um, I would say oddly appropriated kinesiological cues that have been kind of smushed up into Sanskrit that, if you just keep parsing it out, you can't find any there, there. There's just, there's literally no anatomy left. You're like, what? <laughs> it's just yeah. so couched in, um, in, in lexicon and lingo. So what I, what I, what I started to see, well, first of all, I, when I started to teach, oh my gosh, let me see if I can go backwards. My original introduction to yoga was through yoga videos when I was a tween living off the grid in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I'm much older than you. I'm a completely different generation. I was born in 1972. And, um, you know, when back in, back in the day when we were doing yoga, there was no Lululemon, there were no yoga mats. Uh, we actually used the, uh, the grippy stuff that they used to, to place underneath carpets so that carpets wouldn't slip. So, I mean, it was a really a whole different industry. If you even have call it an industry now, it's a massive industry with lots of different commodities within it. Education being one of those commodities. Um, and so I originally learned yoga or, or the first, I mean, my first exposure to yoga was definitely in Santa Fe, probably in some kind of movement hybrid children's class way back when, because it was a lot of hippies in Santa Fe, but I came to really learn practices from two sources. One was the Raquel Walsh yoga video. Forgive me, everybody. But um, that was the first like, oh my gosh, here's an hour and a half of straight yoga. And it actually happened to be Bikram's series. Uh, He sued her 
by the way, N1, of course, because uh, he's very litigious. But then I started to find um, other documents. So I, I found yoga books in the library. I subscribed to Yoga Journal at age 14. And I just became obsessed with, uh, with yoga and what it did for my body, what it did for my mind, because I was a very sedentary child. I was a very overweight child. And I was a very stressed out child, lots of divorces, lots of, of abrupt moves. Um, and I started to find a home in my body uh, through these practices. Uh, fast forward, if I take this thread, there's many threads to my, my journey, but fast forward, I became that Gumby kid in the classes. I was that front row student that any teacher could contort in any way, and I could do any pose. I was elastic. And I didn't know the term hypermobility. I didn't know about uh, joint range of motion and fascia and connected tissues. I didn't really know a lot about any of that until I met my longtime mentor, Glenn Black. And I came across him when I was working at a retreat center in upstate New York. Uh, I found a way to avoid my parents during the summer. And I found instead this holistic studies retreat center that would allow college age kids like myself come and do work study, you know, work for free. And then in, in exchange, get like classes in holistic education. And Glenn Black was the resident yoga teacher and he was a masterful body worker. And he uh, did body work from a lineage from Russia, uh, this man Shmuel Tots, who had a uh, physical therapy practice, uh, osteo or excuse me, orthopedic physical therapy practice in Manhattan. And he called his work body tuning. And so Glenn really took me under his wing I started to learn anatomy from him. I started to learn uh, massage from him. And of course, I started to learn um, the wizardry of his approach to human movement. And he would call, he would pretty much call his classes human movement. He hated calling it yoga. So that was, that was pretty good. That was a, a really wonderful, disruptive thing to do because he already saw problems in yoga asana. Um, and a lot of the problems he saw was people had a, a very poor ability to map their body the proprioception was just off. And so what he would do during a class is he would be very unhappy with how people were performing a pose. And so he would literally make us do massage on each other and make us massage um, the joints, make us uh, um, traction, connective tissue, and do all manner of orthopedic manual massage on each other and then pop back up into the poses. And then suddenly, like magic, you could actually feel your way through a pose. Um, so, you know, decades go on and there's no intention of being a yoga teacher, even though he's mentoring me, <laughs> I have no idea what's happening. Um, I'm living in Los Angeles. I was out in Los Angeles where I am now to act. That was my passion was, was performance. So I was trained as an actress and a dancer, singer, um, and the healing arts. I was also studying massage on the side, by the way, the healing arts really helped me with my mental health and my mental health challenges. I was anorexic and bulimic for many, many years. And um, all this work really helped. Um, well, it was my way through those, um, those addictions and those obsessive compulsive issues. So when I was in Los Angeles, and I finally started teaching yoga after a long, after a short failed career in the performing arts, um, I started to see issues in my classroom, just like Glenn was seeing. I would see that when I would ask people to just bring their bring their hand overhead, you know, that their elbow was crooked and that their shoulder was was doing it like this. And there were there were oh, I'm sorry, you're, a lot of you are just listening. 
they would bring their hand overhead and their elbow would be way out to the side, right? They'd have a bent elbow, their scapula was rolled forward and you know, the, the tension in the, the, the side of the neck, it just didn't look right. And so I started to adopt, uh, make up these little tune-ups in class to help people build their proprioception. I would help them to mobilize their joints or um, experience different ways of experiencing their joint that was outside of the asana, outside of the pose, so that they can then recompose themselves back into a pose. And ultimately, I started bringing tools into the room because I, I saw that massage was probably, um, uh, it was, was a very complimentary tool, but I wasn't licensed to touch. And so I started to bring balls into the classroom and make people do it on themselves. And that became a very empowering act of mapping and proprioception. And long story short, I came up with this programming model called Yoga Tune-Up. Your comment on my post was, I literally returned from the Dead Joint Club to speak about this. Can you, can you tell us about that? Is that what I said? Yeah, I just went back and looked just before the podcast. Oh my God, we've gotten so off topic. Right. Um, so I've, I've literally returned from the Dead Joint Club to, what is the rest of my sentence? Just to speak about this, which it was... To speak about this. Yeah, so the yeah. Dead Joint Club, I, I made that up. I mean, I, I'm very punny. I like, obviously, I use humor to get attention. Um, but yes, my dead joint is my left hip. I had a hip replacement just over five years ago. Uh, turns out I might have a, had a, a birth defect. I had a cam deformation in my femoral, um, the ball, my femur, you can see osteo has a perfect golf ball shape mm -hmm. to the femoral head. And mine, mine was a little oblique, obtuse. It was a little bit of a, of a, an irregular shaped egg. And so who knows when that joint would have gone if, if, I had, if I hadn't lived a life of yoga? Um, maybe it would have gone sooner. Maybe it would have gone later. I have no way of knowing. Mm -hmm. um, but when I, uh, when I finally went and got an MRI um, and then saw my ortho, Dr. Snibby, and my ortho just did a range of motion check on the table. <laughs> first of all, when he walked into the office after seeing my x-ray, his first few words were, so when do you want to schedule? Yeah. Like there were, there were no other words from his mouth. Like no, yeah. like, I'm sorry to let you know you have a degenerate. <laughs> he just was like, so when do you want to schedule? And by the way, he is the most charming disarming wonderful person he's not like this hostile like when do you want to schedule i just want to get that out of the way um and then he puts me on the table and he does the classic you know circumduction hip range of motion test and his next words to me were oh there's your pre-existing condition right there and what he meant by that was the hypermobility <laughs> And it was just one of those, it, was, it felt good to have a doctor validate that for me. I mean, I already knew I was hypermobile, but um, it felt good to have an orthopedist say the truth that I knew was already true. Um, so um, what yoga did for me until I really, I guess, started to study the human body and going to cadaver labs and uh, start to study strength and conditioning, what yoga had done for me is it overstretched every joint of my body in a body that was already prone to being super flexy. Mm -hmm. And the long held isometrics, passive holds isometrically, 
uh, they weren't doing me any favors and they were really deadening, I think, a lot of my contractile ability um, and destabilizing ligaments all over the place. That's not going to be the case for all bodies. I mean, I think somebody who I think those of us who succeed in the yoga space often are ones who can look like the pictures in the book. And but what, what we really should have done is we should have walked behind BKS Iyengar and walked behind Dharma Mitra and walked behind and watched their gait. <laughs> watched how they walked. Had we been informed at the time of what what healthy walking would look like, uh, one of the comments that my wonderful physical therapist uh, Lethal McCurdy here in Los Angeles made to me um, when she was helping me with uh, my rehab, she said, "Well, you've just yoga'd your way out of walking." <laughs> and I like that. <laughs> yeah. And she's a she's a dancer, uh, I guess a recovered dancer. And, you know, that was my, my training was dance and yoga. And it was just, I just overstretched my way out of a normal walking pattern. And that was a lot of what we worked on was, you know, gait cycle. I started studying with Gary Ward um, after, after my hip and um, of anatomy and motion and just started to consume. In fact, I made a program with my friend Katie Bowman called Walking Well, uh, consuming all. And that's, I think, how I found my way to you, David, because your stuff is so excellent. <laughs> regarding I, I think so you don't have to think so but i do <laughs> thank you um, um how, so, how well do your feet move you you want to know how my feet move yeah like what's which what specifically you want to know my pattern just in general no not your pattern but like <laughs> just you know when you started to find gary's work and you were like obviously you would have started to look at the feet a lot so what did you what did you discover then because obviously you found out that your hips were able to move in all these crazy ways, except maybe certain ways. But how did you, how did that manifest at your feet? Uh, well, I got a, uh, a lot of supination in my right foot as a, as a sort of as, as it's, it's preferred mode of being and a lot of pronation in the left foot. And that really is me turning away from the left hip, but basically yeah. the yeah. pretty straight up pattern. And so I'll still get, I'll still find that I'll um, uh, lean right, to avoid putting weight through the left. Um, it's just years and years and years of reprogramming. It's just, it's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, no, it's, I, I just, I, I think that's, an, that's always an interesting question for me because I see a lot of, ho- uh, not a lot, but a, a decent amount of hypermobile people, let's say a lot of them obviously have come from yoga and the the thing in yoga is often like okay look how look how much range of motion i can move through but my my thing is like in certain ways you can move you can you can look like you can do the splits or a pancake or all these movements and some of these poses but let's look at your feet and we see like almost no movement through your midfoot whatsoever we see parts of your spine that you struggle to move so i do, i try to change people's perspective and whether it's right or wrong i don't know but change people's perspectives away from like it's not about how much uh, how pretty like the end picture looks it's about the transition f- between all of these movements how well you can move all of these joints not how much you can move certain joints through range of motion so i think it's always interesting to look at hypermobile people's feet it's really interesting to see and a lot, a lot of the time they're because people will tell you i am hyper, hypermobile full stop but actually you maybe have no mobility through certain areas so oh, that's sure. an interesting one 
Oh, sure. Yeah. My, I, I, I have this, this move called the three twins. So I, I teach a lot of rolling for the feet. I mean, I love doing all sorts of manipulations with the feet. Mm -hmm. um, and I have an exercise called the three twins where you put a yoga tune-up ball, which is the smallest ball that we, that we have and, and put it just in front of the phalanges of digits two, three, and four and the big toe and the pinky toe stay on the ground. And you get this incredible stretch across these poor neglected, you know, they're so neglected. That's why they're the three twins. So they're, they're, you know, they're sharing a common flexor along with the pinky, but it's just fun to isolate them like this. Um, and, and then also just to work on stretching the inner osseal space um, between those three long bones, right? Between the, the you know, uh, two, three and four, um, Meta, uh, metatarsals, metatarsals, yeah. yeah. You get a nice um, stretch across the transverse arch. Across the transverse arch, and yeah. it, for me, that's where my my biggest stiffness is on the right foot because because of uh, pivoting out, um, you know, or turning away from the left, um, the left. Mm -hmm. So, and but then we'll do also exercises where we'll flex into the ball because the rubber has enough stiffness. So your three middle toes will try to contract in like a, a falcon, and then extend up. Um, and so lots of different proprioceptive and also motor control exercises there. Um, but I mean, I've got exercises for every little part of the foot um, because I've had to do it. At, number one, as a dancer, as a former dancer, the foot is everything. And, yeah. and let me let me let me qualify that. Not a ballet dancer. I'm not a dancer in shoes. I'm a modern dancer. I'm one of the weird people. Actually, it's now called contemporary. But back in when I was training, it was called modern and uh, much better back then. <laughs> much, much less dangerous, in my opinion. It was much less contorty. Now it's like, God, it's amazing. I love watching it. But I'm like, oh, my God, ticking time bombs. Okay. Everything was better back then, regardless of, of what you're talking about. Just better back then. Except I was totally overstretched and deconditioned. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. because there wasn't enough exercise science coming into the dance space yeah. we were just stretching stretching and then jump good luck with that yeah 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 it's two completely different ends of the, the spectrum without that strengthening part in between can be a little bit tricky it definitely can um how's your how's your new book going is it is it it uh, thank you for sending it to me how's the sales oh, going let me see if i can lift it it's so heavy david um <laughs> so this is this is the this is the text you see how see my head and see how big this book is? It's huge. Uh, so it is a 4.3 pound. I don't know how many kilos that is, but it's a lot. 480 pages. Um, you we sent you a digital copy, and I know that that overseas shipping is you know is what it is. But I'm right now I'm paging through the book for David to see because it looks much better in person than on the counter. But there's two parts to the book, Body by Breath, The Science and Practice of Physical and Emotional Resilience. The first part is about 180 pages that detail anatomy of respiration and put a really heavy focus on the anatomy of the respiratory diaphragm and all of its neighbors all over the body, the ramifications of the diaphragm's movement. There's a chapter on the vagus nerve, and I take a a deep dive into a model of uh, modern mo a modern model of the vagus nerve under Dr. Stephen Porges's point of view called polyvagal theory. Um, this really helps us to address some of the deep emotional things that arise when you go into parasympathetic states. And by the way, the book really is a recovery book. It is a book that helps anybody to conduct novel 
ways of entering into parasympathetic states and to be able to tolerate being in parasympathetic states because recovery for many people is either boring, they are, they are stretch aver- or they are, sorry, they are meditation averse, or um, they just don't want to take the time to do it. It doesn't feel meaningful enough to them as, as the output of, of intensity training. And so this book really sells recovery and resilience in a, in a very bold way. I also have a chapter that details the mechanics of fascia. And then there's another chapter that details fascia and your sensing systems. And we get into proprioception and spend a lot of time on interoception because in the deep recovery states, your interoception or your physiological listening is what really comes online. And so uh, there's a lot of ways to um, educate people about the phenomenon of that. Um, There's also a chapter on airway, a chapter on the brain and respiration, as well as the role of recovery. And this is this is um, designed for my my athlete people to uh, find a menu of how to how to implement this in terms of their performance. And then the second half of the book is all the exercises that govern the four tools, which are breathe roll, move, and non-sleep deep rest or yoga nidra. And then there's an addendum. There's two addendums. One is on scars and one is on diastasis recti. How long does it take to get a book like that released? I know like, I, I, I know the correct answer is like obviously 30 years of study and all this, but like from, from inception of, okay, I've decided I'm going to release, this is the book that I want to release. How long does that take? Okay. So... I know it's this a, is a logistical question. I want to ask you some questions about the breath and stuff, but this, I'm really interested in this. No, I, I love talking about the, yeah, the, the sort of the mechanics of book writing and inception and time to write and all that sort of stuff. My, the, the, some of the seed materials of this book were written 18 years ago when I, I taught a three-day, which turned into a five-day course called Core Integration Immersion. Um, and that work was this this gut lung thorax centric approach to understanding the interconnectedness of the respiratory diaphragm to all systems of the body and a matter of core control if, if performance is important to you postural control um and emotional sensing so 18 years ago i started to write this stuff out because it was my path to healing from bulimia and it was also my path to training i just loved all the core stuff and um I was, I I got to be really good friends with a physical therapist here in the U.S. called Kelly Starrett, who had created something called Mobility Wad. And at the time, he invited me to be a guest on a platform called Creative Live. And he did his, a two-day show on this platform and invited me to present on the topics of fascia and on the topics of breath. And so I did like two one-hour workshops within this two-day event, and it was amazing. It was aired live. And and then the next day, I got an email in my inbox from a publishing company, Kelly's publishing company. He was writing Becoming a Supple Leopard, and those same publishers reached out to me and said, we would like to publish your book. And I wrote back, I don't have a book. And they wrote back, (laughs) write one, write one, and we'll publish it. So let me just say to all of you hoping to write a book out there, that doesn't happen. (laughs) That is not a one in a million. That's like a one in a billion opportunity Mm -hmm. for this notable publishing company to like hand you, hand you this golden egg and say, we think you have something to say and we'd like you to say it with us. 
And so I had to give some deep thought as to what I wanted to write. Because what I wanted to write was body by breath. Yeah. I wanted to write my approach to breath and core. But 12 years ago, when they asked me to write the book, nobody was talking about breathing in the training space. They were in the yoga space. But mm. that was my that was my you know, my island. And it just wasn't something that people were talking about. I thought it was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> always. I've always thought it was the most important thing. You don't breathe, you die. 22,000 reps a day. My goodness, that's a lot of reps. So um, I decided that that was probably not the right topic. But I did do this other thing in the fascist space. I taught self-myofascial release. And I knew that was a rising trend. And I also knew there was a lot of wrong information out there. And I knew that because I'm in the fascia research space. And um, I decided that I would write the role model and get that perspective out there, which is my other book. And so I think most people actually know me as the ball girl. They don't even know that I have this whole other thing, yoga tune up and then I teach movement, but um, this is the role model. So um, after the, as soon as the role model was written, literally as soon as it was turned in, they're like, when's your next, what's your next book? And so I signed the contract while I was pregnant with my son. My son is now six and a half. So I signed the contract almost eight years ago well. with them. And it took that long to write this book. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, th- I, I interrupted it with an entire year I took off to write the chapter in the medical textbook on self-myofascial release. Um, and then there was a pandemic and I had, a, I thought I would finish the book while I had my hip replaced. I mean, like I was delusional. This book has so much to it. And by the way, we cut 360 pages last August. So it was so overwritten after eight years, um, but it's not now. It's like, it's perfect. And do you have a writing practice? Do you have a thought, like you sit down every day and you write for whatever or like, cause a project that size for me would I, I wouldn't do it because I just wouldn't, I couldn't see any like finish line in, in sight, you know? Dude, uh, you feel me, but we, you know how many times the deadline was moved? I had a year to write the book. I turned it in seven years later and then, and then came all the, you know, then came all the like image problems, the, the, you know, cause I had, I had anatomy images in my head that didn't exist mm-hmm. and I'm trying to, put together like, okay, from this book and from this book, I said, can you smush these all together so we can see the fascia and I can see the diaphragm and I can see the, the, the uh, you know, vagus nerve here. And, you know, I need to make sure I see the small intestine in this one, like crazy asks. I, I think I drove them. I know I drove them crazy. We drove each other crazy, but it's a great publisher. I love the team. And what we got is a massive team effort, labor, labor of, of hard work and, you know, a passion project. So, um, you know, I, I had other seed writings. I had written another manual for a training I taught called the breath and bliss immersion, which is now the body by breath immersion. But so I had, I had two different manuals that had information. So I had been writing stuff, but there's so much other stuff in there. Plus there's all the exercises, all the cues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the book also has off ramps for people. If they're like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm dying in the science here. There's QR codes. That'll take you to a video on YouTube where I, or that, you know, good, simple explainer videos where mm-hmm. you can actually do some engagement with me, some movement with me or try stuff out. Um, awesome. yeah. Love it. I'm going to ask one more question on that. Oh, sure. Uh, cause I'm interested and you can choose to how you want oh. to answer it and how, and like how much detail you want to go into. 
Go on. But I realized I didn't answer the writing practice question. Can I answer the yeah, writing? Yeah, answer that question? one first. Yeah. Okay. So the writing practice is I had two kids under two toddlers, right? When I signed this contract, I was pregnant and then I had that baby. It was impossible to find time to write. The distractions were beyond profound and gross. And then there was the pandemic and you, you were like locked in and I had to homeschool my kids. Um, but once things loosened up enough, what I ended up doing was, I mean, the publisher called me. He's like, hey, Jill, where's, how's that book coming along? And I was like, it's not, I'm losing it. Like I'm completely, it's, it's in tatters. Like I have, I have chapters, but they're a mess. Anyway, they helped me hatch out a plan. I went to a, um, um, I basically went to like a, a writer's retreat center. There are these, there are these different nonprofits all over the, the, in the United States that, um, for very, they're supported by foundations that for a very low cost, you can basically hide out in a room. And I, I hid out in the woods in a little camper on this property, brought all my food. And I would, this is how I like to write, by the way, David, like 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., just just work through, work through, work through, work through. It was like working through edits, working through edits, working through edits. And then I did that then at some hotels, like kind of just 35 miles from my house, like just got away from the kids hold up for, you know, three to five days, a couple of other times to get the work done. Yeah. Okay. That sounds more like me if I ever wanted to do a project like that. Not that any publisher would ever approach me, but if I ever wanted to do a, a project like that, that sounds more like me because like an hour a day or something like that, no. I would never do that. I would have no, to just you like need, lock myself away. You need 19 hours a day. I mean, yeah. for me, because there's so many associations in the research that you're looking for. And so like every page is, has like, you know, especially, you know, it has like, plus you have to have all these explainers and you have to have boxes and you have to, to really help people through it. And then you're like, well, who am I talking to also? Am I talking to general population? Am I talking to clinicians here? You know, what is the tone? What is the tone? How do I communicate? Yeah. Oh, and then what are so the images tricky. before? Yeah. It's so, a lot of work. So tricky. Cause you're not getting, you're not getting instant feedback. Like you might get on social media where you're doing a post, you get feedback, you do another post, you get feedback. It's just like, I don't get any feedback until the book is done. No, and you're hoping that your big thoughts thread well over the course of hundreds and hundreds of pages. Mm -hmm. um, while your attention span is being whittled away because you do go on social media and you know that the value of like a hot take or whatever. Ugh. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, my, my last question on that is, you can you can choose you can you can choose to just ignore this question. Is, uh, is the is writing a book like that more of a brand thing than a monetary thing? I know aside from the fact that it's like a big project and you're going to be always very proud of it and blah 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 and it's going to be on shelves and help a lot of people. Is it more about your brand than anything else? Um, but writing a book, writing a book is not for money unless you have hit such a level of readership that your name is a commodity in terms of literature, mm -hmm. uh, nonfiction literature. I'm sorry. They're very, I mean, it's, you know, like sciencey books, although there really is a big category for self-help. Um, and I mean, I think like, like James Nestor, I don't know what his checks are from, you know, from his publisher. He is one of those rare birds that really broke through on a very, very important scientific topic and did a great job um, kicking a door open for somebody like me, who's an applicator who comes in and says, look, 
you can, this breath thing is really important and here are applications that can help blah, 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 blah. Um, but no, you don't write the book for money. Um, you write the book because you're so tired of explaining it again and again and again in your seminars and your courses, and you just want to have a document that people can refer to. Mm-hmm. So it can teach them without you being in the room. Yeah. So, and, and, and I, don't, I don't mean that in like a, like a, a negative way. I mean, like oh, I, it's I know very you mean. helpful know exactly to have a document that, you know, has all the references, that has all the citations, that has all of it step-by-step mm-hmm. step laid out for your people. Mm-hmm. Now, a year later, two years later, three years later, would you have said it differently? Probably that's yeah. the pain of writing because, you know, the writing is only a reflection of where you are, you know, in, in that time of writing. And once you close the edit, it's closed. I mean, I've been able, we found a few errors and I, I get to send them into the next reprint. Those errors are updated. You know, there was somebody somehow in the transmission of the document into in design, whatever, one of the citations flipped and it was the wrong person cited. And I was like, oh my God, the, the, the wrong citation. But, you know, it's like, okay. So there's going to be those little, those little mischievous errors that show up. Um, but in terms of the brand, what, what, it, what being an author does for you is it makes you an authority, David. Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally it's in the word author authority and yeah, good point. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and, you know, I've worked decades on this material and uh, um, it is, an incredible feeling as a professional to know that I have these publications behind me. And then also I have a, a publishing universe behind me and an ecosystem of, of other authors affiliated with um, this publishing company that uh, support and champion the work. The, so in terms of the brand, yeah. Oh my goodness. It's so helpful for the brand to have an author at its helm, right? Because, you know, part of my job, I mean, my job is a creator. I just look at myself as an artist and a creator, not as a salesperson. Um, but obviously in explaining my work, I am, it is, it is, it sells itself, hopefully, but really it sells itself best when I have people on the ground doing the work, experiencing deep embodiment and radical change um, in all these systems of their body. And, but they're doing that themselves. I'm just, you know, cueing them and maybe they're using my tools. Maybe they're using somebody else's tools. Um, but you know, the proof is in the experiential. Now that's difficult. You know, it's not like I'm just making music and I can sell music. I, I really, the work doesn't belong in the pages of the book. The work belongs in people's bodies. And so my mission is to try to find as many spaces as I can, whether it's a virtual like this or, um, you know, in, in classrooms or gyms or clinics to be able to get people in their body and have the experience. And then they become ambassadors for the work. So yes, the brand, um, proliferation is powerful because of having a document like a book. Awesome. That's a great answer. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Um, really good answer. I had, a, I had a look through the, the, the PDF copy that you sent me. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about relaxation induced anxiety? Yes. It's not something that's spoken about much. No, really you know, because it's not in the DSM. So this is not a pathology. Right. It's not a diagnostic, um, a recognized diagnosis. Um, it's a phenomenon that seems to have a large prevalence in 
in bodies. So there's some estimates it's between 17 and 53% of bodies experience this relaxation-induced anxiety. Now, what is relaxation-induced anxiety? Relaxation-induced anxiety is the phenomenon of when a body enters stillness or when a body tries to calm down, they experience a rush of unpleasant side effects that came about because of the stillness. What are these side effects? Racing heart, um, racing thoughts. That should sound familiar to anybody who's ever tried to meditate, right? Um, pain. And then uh, the other category is uh, muscle contractions, unwanted muscle contractions, or rushes through the nerves of the body, rushes down the median nerve, rushes down the sciatic nerve that feel like um, you've got gerbils just running up and down and up and down and up and down. And I had read about this phenomenon in my early 20s when I was reading a anatomy textbook um, that was from the yoga space. So it was, I think, Yoga Anatomy. It was a great book. Um, David Coulter uh, wrote this um, book. And he was talking about Shavasana. So Shavasana is the corpse pose or it's the um, stillness meditation uh, prone, st excuse me, supine stillness meditation that bodies do typically after every yoga class. So this is really kind of a standard uh, relaxation dessert that yoga people come to rely on is I get to lay on my back and just chill at the end of a class. And one of the things he mentioned is that there would be a certain number of people that it is intolerable for them to lay still and that the stillness actually arouses relaxation-induced anxiety. That was the first time I came across this term, and I think the book was written in 1991 or 92. Um, but it stuck in my brain because I was like, yeah, sometimes when I'm teaching, I see people fidget a lot or that they're unable to close their eyes. That would have been me, definitely, in the past. Definitely would have been me in the past. And so, you know, the yoga police would be like, just be still. Can't you just be still? Well, no, the body is having this involuntary response. They're not trying to not be still. They're trying to be still and their body is betraying them here. Mm -hmm. um, and this is extremely challenging for, um, uh, it's extremely challenging for them to then go through the layers of parasympathetic onset because they just keep getting kicked out of it. And so, so, so how does that person relax? Okay, I, lay, I sit down in front of the TV, I watch 20 minutes of TV, and then I pass out. So they're just bypassing true relaxation. And then during the night, they're grinding their jaw, restless leg syndrome. So there, there are a lot of other, um, I would say, uh, symptoms or comorbidities that are going along with the inability to relax completely. And so, um, you know, there's been some studies that have looked at different modes of helping people with relaxation induced anxiety. And I, I personally seem to attract a lot of these people. Maybe it's because I'm so high strung, but um, when it comes time to doing relaxation practices, I'm like, oh yeah, bring it. Bring it. Sorry, because I like, I use these tools and that are outlined in the book to really help promote a novel way of hopefully tricking tricking or entertaining the brain enough that it doesn't end up getting these negative symptoms that come up in relaxation induced anxiety and so the the tools we use are breathe but it's not always breathing in stillness so by the way, breathing in, breathing in a still body or breathing in a seated like meditation style body or even a reclining meditation style body 
that can be a trigger for relaxation-induced anxiety. So if there are uh, interesting positions that they find themselves in, that can be an, a distraction enough to the brain that it will bypass the sympathetic override. So we have breathe, we have roll, and so the rolling is done incredibly gently and in incredibly um, profound ways to uh, in certain pressure, sort of pressure points and pressure vectors that help arouse parasympathetic dominance and then move. And in the move chapter, the movements um, can be these very super slow dynamic moves or they can be um, uh, test moves that actually punctuate uh, sympathetic uh, tension so that they have some contrasting. And then the final tool is non-sleep deep rest or yoga nidra. Now the non-sleep deep rest or yoga nidra is really only capable of taking foot in a body that has finally exhausted the relaxation induced anxiety. So not all people, I'm, I'm not saying that, that yoga nidra or non-sleep deep rest is the um, uh, pinnacle of relaxation, um, but for, for a human body, ultimately stillness, stillness, will be the most restorative if stillness is tolerable yeah if stillness is tolerable that's really it's super interesting it's almost like the scale of re relaxation if you have that scale of relaxation in your body you're someone that can benefit from this but if you can't actually relax you're the person that needs to relax learn to relax the most but when you try and relax your body fights against you Right. And that's a tricky place to be. I've probably been there in the past, partly probably because during like I've done some Taoist practices, standing mm -hmm. meditation, stuff like that, which is super difficult. And in some ways, like they want it to be difficult. It's not supposed to be. It's almost like you're just going to stand there and you're going to do this every day for months and months and months and years and years, hopefully, if you keep going with it. And like you go through the difficulty and relaxation comes out as a result. But for me, I always felt like I was trying to do something. And with a lot of breathing practices that I've, I've tried in the past, it was always like too much information for me, for me almost where, cause I'm a doer. It was always like, okay, you need to put the air into this part of your rib cage or put the air into this part of your belly or make sure it's this amount, exact amount of seconds. And so I had all these distractions in my mind like that. Okay. I can do all of these things while I'm trying to relax rather than just actually letting go and relaxing. And I see that a lot. And well, I think it's important to have programming that supports people getting rid get, slowly being able to let go of the crutches. Mm -hmm. Do you understand? So what you're, so I think that the doings, if, the doings are very important because they do um, allow for a, a non-focus. Uh, so the over-focusing on, uh, it's, this, is really, this is why there's a chapter on polyvagal theory in the book, because it really, it does start to address some of the developmental places where our bodies might not have felt safe in stillness, might not have felt safe in vulnerable positions, right? So when you think about, you know, you're, you're imitating sleep in public when you're doing like Shavasana in a classroom, right? Your groin is open, your, genital, your genitals are there for the world to see, your chest and your heart, your organs are exposed. That doesn't always feel like a, a safe place for many bodies. And then when you're alone, um, sometimes that lonely, that alone meditation also on, in the way back recesses of the mind, you might not feel safe 
alone and vulnerable either. So there are, I think there's some psycho-emotional things that are, that we get to, they get to bring to the table. And that's one of the reasons why in the book, I have a, a, a many, many mindsets that you can pick up and use to help you as the adult, you support the growth of this sensate you that maybe you've been running from for a while or haven't really let relax since you were a tiny baby in somebody's arms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot there, but um, what I have seen is people going through these types of practices. Um, it does finally allow them to just turn off the need to over control all of it. Yeah. Uh, and it's such a relief mm-hmm. to not have to control and pipette every rib or every this or every that, but but you have to go back and forth and back and forth to, to finally find that line where you can literally surrender and let your autonomic nervous system um, be in parasympathetic dominance. So I talk about that as called parasympathetic endurance. Like we have to build a tolerance for parasympathetic endurance, just in the same way that people build a tolerance for running a 26.2 mile marathon. I mean, that's like bananas. So we should be able to run 26.2 miles in our parasympathetic nervous system too but we're not trained for that this is the training for that yeah yeah that's great because my 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 breath stuff usually that i'm doing with clients there is a parasympathetic element to it definitely where like i'm more likely to do it with people who are just can't chill they just can't relax so i'm more likely to have that as part of their rehab but also there's a massive part of it which is opening up movement in the thorax and, okay. and the pelvis and uh, and trying to expand compressed places but when you start to go down that kind of rabbit hole of learning okay i need to get some compression in in this place so it gets some more expansion in this part of the thorax you can end up getting people to try and do a lot of things so like they're doing they're trying to get the inhale push the inhale into a certain part push the exhale out and I, I, I'm just, I, I went probably too far down that direction for a while we, and sacrificed some of the relaxation aspects of it. And now I'm trying to bring back in more like, okay, if we actually just chill and have a good breath cycle. And of course, there can be a certain amount of like, do these certain tasks while you're doing it, but not too many. Then a good breath cycle and in a relaxed body in a nice position, I think that will take care of a lot of stuff. Yeah. If, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of that's kind of where. Yeah, I'm and at. then you can layer tension on top of it. I mean, what I end up doing, like I have a three day immersion called the Body by Breath immersion, and it really is a stripping away of the unknown bracing responses all over the body. I mean, it is a systematic process over the three days. It's unbelievable. Like, talk about, you know, I mean, you feel you don't feel as disarticulated as as osteo, but. To, 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 we walk around with so much unconscious bracing all the time. We just don't know how, how much over-controlling our brain is doing on all these little tiny fascicles all over our body to be able to, to be as void as possible of that and then to rebuild at will the patterns I want to build. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think there's a lot of value in that because otherwise you're just building tension on tension right? You've got no glide where those over-tightened, over-tensioned places have been for decades upon decades. So that's why the tools use. That's why the therapy balls are used to really help promote the glide in all of these layers. Um, and then ultimately a rehab model like yourself 
it's like you, you're like dealing with you get to deal with clay and you get to really work through. Um, and then, of course, you know, people's stuff will come up like it is emotional um, to not have your holding pattern. What's been what's gotten you to this point in life? It is extremely difficult to let go of all of the crutches that have kept you together up to this point. But I mean, I love, I mean, I personally, I love like, burn it down, build it back up, burn it down, build it back up. Yeah. That just takes a bit of awareness to say, you know, there might be a a little bit of shit that you have to go through for a little while, but we're moving, we're moving somewhere we want to get to. And yeah, yeah. That's why it's nice to have a coach as well. For sure. um, Freaking out on your own. (laughs) Uh, Someone that can tell you this is normal. Um, Can you talk about the, I have a friend who I know is going to be listening to this podcast and he's had some stomach issues and he said that's doing some belly breathing and he's had some like digestive, digestive issues. And he said like that doing a little bit of belly breathing and softening off that area was very helpful. Um, And I don't know much about that. So again, like my, my mindset would be back to like, the movement side of things of course like if you're not getting movement through that area then there's just a lack of movement which is stagnation so i can see how that can obviously possibly affect everything but can you talk about the digestive side of things and how you might what your where your thoughts would go and maybe using some of the balls or the breath and stuff to open up some space there Yeah, there's a lot of different directions to go. I don't know what the nature of his digestive problems are, whether he's constipated or whether he's got acid reflux or whether he's got, you know, I don't, I don't know what the nature of it is, but let's just say all that stuff. Let's just say, (laughs) and and by the way, this friend is not me. So I know that question will be asked. Like I have a friend who (laughs) not me. And, and there's nothing wrong with this person, but uh, it's not me. I don't ask that question for me, but um, let's just say digestive issues. Okay, so we can see the diaphragm as a as a pump. It's a pump and a partition, right? Living inside of the thorax. You can see here on osteo, I've got two deflated corgis balls. So the corgis ball is um, a grippy air-filled ball that I use that we use for a lot of of trunk and thorax and gut and pelvic floor stuff because it's got a lot of squish to it. So I have two deflated ones that are a great model for the respiratory diaphragm inside a, a, a general skeleton model. So when oh, yeah, part of the diaphragm just <laughs> fell out. The right, right side. Yeah. Well, it wants me to talk about the right side diaphragm, I think. So your, your diaphragm is like a hoodie for your visceral organs. So all of your organs are just sitting underneath the diaphragm. Thank God your diaphragm is there. Otherwise, your organs would be up in your face. Right. Because they're floating in, in fluid and your diaphragm keeps them at bay and it keeps them at bay and it oscillates them every time your diaphragm contracts. It's bouncing itself down upon the liver and the transverse colon and the stomach and the spleen. And on exhale, it relieves that pressure. So we have this the inner abdominal pressure from the diaphragm descending. And then we have this intrathoracic pressure pressure as well that the diaphragm is regulating. Um, and so if the diaphragm doesn't get to go down and up very well, and so that, by the way, when it goes down and up, I'm referring to the, the, the range of motion of, of what I call zone one breathing or abdominal breathing. So in abdominal breathing, we rely on the movement, the downward and upward movement of the diaphragm, and then the concurrent elasticity of the transversus abdominis, the latissimus dorsi, all of the, uh, shallow and deep muscles affiliated with the rectus sheath that includes the obliques, the rectus 
you know, rectus abdominis, and then all of the affiliated tissues associated with the thoracolumbar aponeurosis, the, the fascias of the thoracolumbar fascia, that includes uh, erector spinae, quadratus lumborum, psoas, transversus abdominis, obliques, um, uh, external abdominal oblique, particularly uh, latissimus dorsi. So we have this elasticity that should be occurring. And by the way, there's also a co-occurring elasticity in the pelvic floor as the diaphragm is descending. So our abdominal breath, our zone one breath, um, gives us this wonderful rhythm. And that rhythm of bobbing the diaphragm upon the organs is one of the things that promotes the movement of food through your system. So it's an additional input to helping um, digestion move along. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm stiff in my zone one region for whatever reason, whether I might have scar tissue in my abdomen that's preventing good expansion and reflexive movement, or maybe I have um, a habit of pulling in my, my abdominals, I want to look thinner. Um, or maybe there's been a, you know, a, a back surgery something that is creating involuntary stiffening in different layers. Um, I, my diaphragm may not move down and up very well. And so it, I'm going to lose motility of that input. And also if my diaphragm can't move down and up very well, and if those tissues can't expand very well, what that will do is it'll probably kick me into what I call zone two breathing. In zone two breathing, we have the, the rhythm, the natural rhythm that occurs with the intercostals and the diaphragm. And so in zone two breathing, the ribs, uh, uplift, they upwardly rotate on inhale to overgeneralize, and on exhale, they downwardly rotate. Now, by the way, when I'm in zone one breathing, that is the most calming and parasympathetic style of breathing known to the body. This is this is breaths at rest, breaths at rest. This is digestion. When I go into zone two, I'm in a more sympathetic, amplified, excited, aroused state of breathing, and um, this is very helpful for sport and output for of creating correct bracing of the you know lower core. If I'm lifting heavy things, I don't want my my pelvis to not be supported by my abdominal muscles, by my core muscles. So I need to breathe somewhere, and so the breathing is going to go into the ribs um, as a fairly isolated um, experience of, of respiration. And the diaphragm is going to move laterally, but it's not going to really descend down. The central tendon of the diaphragm is not going to be pushing down um, as much as it would in an abdominal breath where the ribs are quiet. So with the ribs lifting, with the ribs being noisy, I get this lateral expansion of the thorax. Now, if that becomes my perpetual way of breathing, I'm going to continue to perpetuate stiffness in zone one. So I will, just by lack of movement here, um, I'm going to engender more stiffness because that's just the way connective tissues adapt to non-movement that will just solidify, uh, agglomerate, and stiffen. Mm -hmm. So if I become a zone two breather, I'm more aroused more of the time. Um, often what can happen is the zone two breathing will then start to default into zone three breathing. In zone three breathing, I'm pointing on my anatomy skeleton to the shoulders, collarbones, neck, face, jaw. And if I'm trying to get my breath up here, it will be short and sharp. Typically, it'll be um, an open jaw or a mouth breath. Um, and it's not a tenable, enduring, long-term breath. It's good for short, um, arousing bursts of energy if I need to get the heck out of a space. Um, if I hear a gunshot, I, I really hope my adrenals kick in and I, I have an explosive, arousing, hyper-arousing breath like that, and then I get out. Um, but it becomes very problematic if zone three breathing becomes the dominant 
uh, way of getting air in. We see this in as asthmatics. We see it in um, forward head on neck posture that the body ends up being casted into zone three breathing. And over time, this can lead to, you know, pain, um, constant state of high anxiety, hyperarousal, and so on and so forth. So um, all this to say for your friend, when your friend does abdominal breathing, he's entering into a more rest, digest, reflexive, uh, reflective um, state of being, a more interoceptive, arousing state of being. Using an intervention like a gorgeous ball can be really helpful in the abdomen or even in the thorax to try to tamp down on the, the zone three or the high stress breath and get me more into a zone one, zone two balance, which is really ideal for your day-to-day shenanigans. And we only need zone three in case of emergency. Um, it's there. We, you know, we want to have it, but we don't want to, you know, uh, use it at, uh, at all, all the time. So I hope that helps to give you kind of a model. And I outline this in, this is one of the premises in body by breath. It's really, I think it's really easy to, to start to understand the anatomy with this model. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great answer. And I, I think what you said at the end, like that balance between zone one and zone two is really important because, um, I don't know if you know, postural restoration Institute, they're big on probably like the zone two, which is the ATP expansion in the thorax laterally as well. Uh, obviously yoga is much more like biased towards probably zone one, which is a lot of belly breathing. And it's interesting because like the yogis that I come across that really go to f- higher down the route of belly breathing, they have some of the stiffest thoraxes that I've ever seen. They cannot move their thorax, um, thoracic spine in particular. They cannot get any posterior expansion. And the PRI people have some of the stiffest rectus abdominis that I've seen. They can't maybe hinge forward or anything like that because they've tensed their abs so much to try and force the air to go into zone two so i like that you said like that balance between both at the end but the thing that probably both of them agree on is the zone three which is you probably don't want to be spending a lot of your day uh living breathing that way but some people i think get confused and and see chest expansion like just anterior expansion as that elevation that zone three and it's important to I think it's important for people to understand that they're not the same thing. So like that anterior to posterior expansion in the thorax is not the same thing as that big, just elevation of right. everything coming up. Um, so it's, I think probably like that zone one, zone two, zone three is a nice way of looking at it. And that balance between one and two is, is important. And not a lot of people have that. <laughs> and not a lot of people know how to train that. Uh, no, that's, that's how I train people. So, and, 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 you know, but a lot of these tissues are very devoid of sensory feedback, um, from years of overtraining or years of disavowing the abs or, um, like again, or overtraining. And I think that the disavowal is the just disgust and dislike of fat in our culture. Um, and what that's done to people's attitudes about their abs and that these are something that need to be controlled. They need to be modified. They need to be punished. Um, they need to burn, you know, you hear all the, the lingo that's associated with it. So I think there's a lot of, um, really hostile lingo that has affected our, our, you know, the body's ability to settle in there and be able to navigate sensation, um, also delineate sensation, and then be able to select select different layers for optimal control at different um, points in time. You know, you, you have, you don't have to just, it doesn't all, it doesn't have to be all or one. You can select different muscles in the core for activation, um, irrespective of others. And that differentiation 
you know, you need to work very slowly, methodically, um, and I think with tools to highlight proprioception and sensory feedback, as well as motor control to, to capture that. There's one exercise in the book that's really over the top that I, I teach at some seminars. It's called Nali Kriya, which is lateral abdominal churning. And it's just one of these weird spectral exercises from the yoga space that is a, a good, uh, you know, party, party, party talk pleaser. But that exercise really allows me to explain and to decompose all of the layers for people. And I don't intend for anybody to learn Nali, only the yoga, the real hardcore yoga people want to learn it. Um, but it really does help act as a organizing principle exercise from which we can, you know, really discern these themes of, you know, sensation, the layers, uh, motor control, fascial awareness, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And I, breath, um, excuse me, and breath. And breath, yeah, and movement. <laughs> Probably by breath. Movement. Um, yeah. Awesome. Jill, where should people go if they want to check out your book um, or wherever you want them to go in general? Well, I would love you to check out the book. It's being sold worldwide on Amazon, of course, Barnes & Noble in the U.S., um, lots of pretty any online retailer all over Canada, um, book depository sells internationally for my friends who are like, I can't get it here. Book depository is free shipping worldwide. My website is tuneupfitness.com and I have lots of trainings and programs and an online classroom there, a mentor program as well. I have weekly classes that drop that cover narrow and n- narrow and broad topics in move, breathe and roll themes. In fact, I have a, a new class coming out all called So You Think You Can't Jump. And a lot of, uh, I I think there's two exercises that I borrowed from you and I give you credit um, in that class. Um, So there's also an entire class just on the big toe. So sometimes they're very narrow topics. Other times it's like, there's a class called Happy New Rear. There's longer form trainings uh, on my website that I've done with colleagues, uh, notable movement colleagues. I mentioned Katie Bowman, Kelly Starrett also. There's a course called Treat While You Train. And then the great Fascia Oracle, Tom Myers, he and I have a program called Rolling Along the Anatomy of Trains. And I have an upcoming program with my friend um, Jennifer Brony, an incredible physical therapist, Doc Jen Fit on Instagram, called Roll Into Hit, where we break down um, the mechanics of, of hit and help scale up intensity for bodies like mine that had to go through uh, surgeries and were you know, afraid to jump. So lots of different offerings for people. You've been busy. Oh, there's so much. And then there's teachers all over the world. So you can go to our website and put in your zip code and look for a local teacher. We have about 500 role model method practitioners and yoga tune-up teachers worldwide. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate the chat. Um, I learned loads and I hope that I'm looking forward to getting my hard copy of the book and um, I hope it does well. I have no doubt that it, that it will. And um, yeah, thanks again. Thanks, David. I can't wait to be in the room with you and learn directly from you. I think what you do is amazing. I love your analysis and your output. Thank you so much. I'll uh, hopefully catch you soon. Hey guys, David here again. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jill. I thought it was really good. Really, really enjoyed the chat. Super interesting things there for me to think about and um, hopefully for you as well. Just a reminder um, to maybe check out our Upper Body Basics program if you're interested in like some of the stuff that we're talking about on the ribcage there. Upper Body Basics, I think, is the place to go. There's tons of like breathing type of exercises and but not just that, like everyone kind of has that stuff i dive into like 
how to get the scaps actually gliding around the rib cage, which I think is so, so, so important. Um, different types of reaches we can do, different types of mobility exercises for the wrist, the elbow, the shoulder, the rib cage, the scap, and so on. So I think probably most of you have done lower body basics by now, but if you're interested in helping people or yourself with upper body issues, uh, that's the place to go. There's a bonus next section at the start of it, which is absolutely money. It will help you like relax that zone three breathing that we were talking about there chill your neck get it to relax and then you'll actually start to experience true expansion of the rib cage in in the right areas or in the areas that 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 maybe are a bit compressed so i'll put the link for our upper body basics below and apart from that i hope you enjoyed the episode and i'll chat to you guys next week 